The message this morning is called Justified by a Righteousness from God. Justified by the righteousness from God. And um, it's, it's really, I'm really happy to be here in Romans because we've spent many, many, many weeks um, looking at the condemnation that is <clears throat> upon us and the reality of our sin and the distance between the purity and the love and the selflessness and the kindness and the goodness that God is calling from us, the love for him and the love for our neighbor that God rightly calls us to and how far short we fall from that and the consequences of that. And we are moving over that into the solution to that dilemma, to that problem. And it's just, it is really nice to, to prepare this, to immerse my own heart in it. Uh, Tim Keller, in his uh, message on this passage, tells a story of, that's also quoted in uh, Chariots of Fire, uh, the movie about um, an early 20th century Olympian who is also a Christian and his journey trying to remain faithful to God in the midst of all that Olympic stuff. And uh, one of the runners in this movie is being asked, why do you work so hard? Why do you train so hard? Why do you sacrifice so much to do this, this running, this Olympic thing, this race? And he says this thing that I, I could relate to. He said, uh, because I know that once that gun sounds, I have 10 seconds to justify why I'm there. I might be paraphrasing that a little bit wrong, but, but that's the idea. He said, once that goes off, I have 10 seconds to really show that I belong, to really get the monkey off my back, in other words, this feeling of pressure to deserve it, to justify my existence. And um, I can really relate to that. And I think in some different ways, maybe many of us can. And I think that isn't a, an athletic competition issue. Keller would argue that that's not a psychological issue. The psychology of that is an expression of something much deeper inside us, a spiritual issue, this desire to be safe this desire to be approved, this desire to be right with God. And we may not put it in those terms, but everybody feels a sense of, I, I wanna be free of the condemnation of whatever it might be at work, in my family, the pressure to prove myself again and again. And, and at the core of those relationships, at the core of those ways that we find our identity, whether it's in our job, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in our children's success or failure, at the core of that is this desire to be safe and to be free from condemnation. The trouble is the ways we go after it really can hurt us and hurt other people. And God has a better way of getting to the core and answering it. So 
our passage is Romans 3, 19 through 26. And um, this is one of the greatest passages in the Bible, according to many people. As you read, you know, commentaries getting ready for this passage, you'd hear this again and again. Phrases like, perhaps there is no more passage in the Bible that dot, da, dot, da, dot, da, dot, or this is one of, if not the most, da, dot, da, dot, da, dot, da, dot. And I just think it's absolutely true. It's incredible. This passage is glorious. I will not do it justice, but that's kind of the point of the passage. It's okay if I don't do it justice because somebody has done it justice for me. I want to remember the background of this passage. Coming back to the darkness, uh, since early in Paul's letter in chapter one, he's Paul's been making the case, trying to convince us that we need a cure for a disease by highlighting the real disease. He's been trying to help us understand that both Jewish people, who basically people who have God's Old Testament, have a relationship by covenant with God, and Gentiles who don't know God, who worship Aphrodite or Zeus in his time period, Jews and Gentiles are all alike under God's wrath. They're under God's condemnation. And in chapter one, we saw that because of man's rejection of God and our moving towards idolatry, God's wrath has been at work in history in this terrible dynamic of giving us over to our own sinful desires, handing us over to our own rejection of him, saying, okay, I'll let you go. Okay, I'll confirm you in that, moving away from me. And then in chapter two, we see this very uh, sobering reality that God's wrath is, te- is on a trajectory to have an ultimate and eternal manifestation on this day that Paul calls the day when God's righteous judgment is revealed, when the secrets of our hearts are exposed. Paul calls it the day of wrath because people will be judged for their sin and liable to eternal destruction. He says the Gentiles who don't have the laws of God will be judged by that internal witness of their conscience. Do you remember we talked about the, if you were here for that message, the invisible tape recorder, as Francis Schaeffer called it, that we all walk around with this invisible tape recorder and God will judge people saying, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold you to the, old, the same standards you held everyone else to, even if you didn't have a Bible. You have this sense of right and wrong and you've been judging people according to that sense of right and wrong and you're gonna be judged by that same standard and you're not gonna be righteous before me. And of course, the, the people who do have God's Jewish law, the 10 commandments, the law, the Torah that was given through Moses, they will be judged by that law. And, and, and as a backdrop with all this, Paul climaxes his entire argument now in verse 19, our dilemma, guilty before God. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, whether it's the, the law of, that you see in the Torah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, or the law that's just in your heart that you know, you know that you should treat other people the way you want to be treated, or you call other people and condemn other people. Whatever that law is, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be held accountable to God. Every mouth being closed means when we stand before God and see him face to face, we will have no answer to rebuke him. We will know in our gut he's right. And it's something that's very hard for us to see now, but God will strip away our shields and our, the, the, uh, the proverbial, um, the proverbial, whatever Adam and Eve, this, this fig leaves that we cover ourselves with. And he'll say, no, you know, I remember part of my conversion story is, is, um, before I was saved, having a dream in uh, 1992 
uh, where I stood before God's judgment. His judgment had come to the earth. It was one of, it was one of two dreams that I think were, were very literal and real prophetic warnings from God. And I was at that point, I, I don't believe that I was born again, but God was really working on me in all kinds of beautiful, encouraging, wonderful ways. But in this dream, I got some really hard medicine and I saw myself before God's judgment. And I knew that I was going to be judged. There was, all that was left for me was an eternal destruction. And I had nothing to say. I, I, there was no protest I could make. I just knew that I was on the wrong side of love, of love God and love people. And I had no excuse. So I had no answer to give him. My mouth, so to speak, was closed. And Paul explains in verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. There is a futility in the law of love. I'm not talking about the law of circumcision or the law of having phylacteries and, and the law of washing your hands or the law of not eating shellfish. No, the heart of the law is love. To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. There is a futility in the law of God to exonerate everyone. All the world is under, literally, the word is upodikos. It means under judgment. No one will be justified by the law of love. Sinful mankind, Paul says, is on a collision course with God's final verdict. And on that day, no one will be justified by that verdict. The word justified, this is important for us to grapple with. This word is law court language. Paul's going to use a lot of legal terms. By legal terms, I don't mean superficial. I mean God's a just God. His better way to say it, he's going to use a lot of justice terms. Justice terms, right and wrong. This word, no one will be justified. It's a law court word. It has to do with the verdict of a of a guilty or righteous verdict given when a judge declares you innocent, righteous, or when he declares you guilty or liable. And Paul says when God judges mankind through Christ as it stands, the verdict will be one of condemnation. This verdict will come because none of us keep God's law of love for him and our neighbor as we should. And so the holy, good law of love cannot save us. Rather, it communicates, Paul says, for from it comes the knowledge of sin. It communicates our sin, not our righteousness. It tells us what we've done wrong. It doesn't save us. But just as this darkest point, the climax of, of two and a half chapters of, oh, hard, hard truth, just as it gets as dark as it's going to get, the, the sun comes up. And I am so glad because chapter after chapter after chapter, we get to hear of God's rescue. We get to hear of his love. We get to hear of what he is doing to save us and to change us and how he wants all people to experience this. And this is God's gracious solution. The core of our problem, a righteousness from God. See, God is a holy God. He's a just God. The law of love is a good and holy law. And he doesn't do anything by sweeping stuff under the rug. He doesn't hide wrongdoing. He doesn't pretend things aren't what they are. He can't do it. He'd corrupt himself. He's just God. So the, the first thing he has to take care of before he lavishes grace and mercy for eternity upon us is he has to take care of justice. 
the justice of, of our transgressions, of the law of love. And this is what he's going to do. Here's what he does. Verse 21. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Verse 21 tells us that God has a way to save us from the law's condemnation. It is a righteousness from him for us. It's called, in our translation, the ESV, the righteousness of God. In other translations, you might remember the NIV, a righteousness from God. These are articles and perpendicular phrases that can go either way in Greek. But the point is, this is extremely important. Since mankind cannot be justified through our obedience to God's law of loving him and loving one another as we should, if God is going to save us, he must do so through that first phrase of this verse, apart from law. It has to be just, but it can't be through the Ten Commandments and how we've solved it. He has to find a way to save us apart from our ability to fulfill the law's requirements. But then he says, this, this righteousness of God, that he's, but now that he's going to bring and usher in and show you, there's a way in which it's always been around. There's a way in which it's always been testified to. It's, it's new. The new covenant is coming, but we've been hearing about this covenant for thousands of years, Paul says. It's been testified to by the law and the prophets in verse 21. This is an allusion to the Old Testament. We go back to the garden and what did God do after Adam and Eve sinned? He promised a deliverer from the one who drew them into sin, Satan. He sacrificed some animals to make them coverings. They had fig leaves. He could have let them stay with those, but he was communicating to them that the, a life has to end. Blood has to be poured out for you to have the covering you need. He spoke to Abram and said, through you, all nations will be blessed. And because you trust me, not because you're perfect. I'm going to justify you. I'm going to give you a righteousness you don't have. He forgave David of his terrible sins. Through the entire Old Testament, Israel was given this sacrificial system of bloody animal sacrifices, which pointed to our need for atonement. And of course, through Promise after promise after promise, the prophets told us of a Messiah who was going to come to deliver us. One who would be, as Isaiah says, and hopefully you're, you're well familiar with, because we talk about it a good amount, 700 years before Jesus comes, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace is upon him. This is what Paul means when he says, we've been hearing about this for a long time, but now it's here. Now it's here. God's solution to our dilemma is the righteousness of God. What does Paul mean by the righteousness of God here? People have been asking that question for 2,000 years. There have been various opinions and arguments. Some of these things are tricky. I love to continue to remind you as an imperfect, and this is hard to preach pastor, that Peter, Paul's friend, said Paul says hard things. <laughs> he says things that are hard to understand. I Amen that, 100%. I'm studying this, I'm racking my brain. Some of these things are clear to me, some of them are less than clear. I'm gonna try to be honest with you about that. Great people who love Jesus, who are totally saved and born again, 
They don't always see eye to eye about some of these things. But I think we can get enough here to hopefully, I pray by God's grace, be encouraged. When we hear the word righteousness, we Americans, English, people, English speakers, usually think of someone's good character lived out. Someone's good character. Which one would you say? If I say my grandfather was a really righteous man, typically I don't say that, but if I said that, you would think I was asserting that my grandpa had a good heart and he lived it out. And that's true. That's one way we can think of it. But, but here, Leon Morris, this good theologian, is, it reminds us that Paul is delving back into Hebrew ideas, Hebrew language. And righteousness to the Hebrews was first and foremost a legal declaration. It was a verdict. It was a verdict. It was a law court language. In the Bible, the righteous and the wicked often mean what we mean when we speak of the innocent and the guilty. In the final analysis, in other words, what matters is God's verdict over our lives. What matters is the verdict in God's heavenly courtroom. And the man or woman who is ultimately righteous is the man or the woman who is acquitted when tried at the bar of God's justice. The point of all this is that when Paul speaks of the righteousness of or from God, in the context, think of the context of our need to get out of his condemnation on the day of judgment when he judges all people, Paul is pointing to the truth that God is ready to give a verdict of righteousness to people in his courtroom. And here is the great news. It is apart from law. It comes to you not from your keeping the laws, which are great and good, and we should all want to keep those laws, but we don't. But even though we don't, God is here through Christ to give us a verdict of righteous anyway. Wouldn't this be wonderful? Who doesn't want that? If God could, just by declaring it, you are righteous before me. Yes, you who fail to keep my holy law, to love me and to love your neighbor as yourself. I declare you righteous. Perfect in my sight. Acceptable completely. Better than acceptable. Spotless. Blameless. Wouldn't that be great? That is exactly what God does in the gospel. Verse 22 tells us how the righteousness that God gives us in his holy courtroom is even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. This verse makes explicitly clear that this righteous verdict to us comes through trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And again, it, it's not a righteousness that comes to you and I by keeping God's law. It is a righteousness that comes through trusting in what Jesus has done. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Next point, justified by grace, not by self. Justified by grace, not by self. 
the news is getting better and better. The people in view in verses 22, 23, and 24 are all who believe. All these people who believe, all of you in this room who believe in Jesus, Paul says, you're also the people, this is great news, who've all missed the mark and fall short of God's glory. This means we don't live to fall short of God's glory. My best sense is that this means that we don't live as the greatness of God deserves. God's majesty and honor and love and his goodness. If we let ourselves see it as it really is, if we were able even anymore as mankind to see God for who he really is and what he's really done and what he's really like, the kind of response that he justly deserves, we don't give it to him. That's what Paul is probably saying here. And I say that because of what God said, what Paul said in Romans 1, that we do not give God the honor due him, that we don't give him the life of thanksgiving that he deserves, that we exchanged in Romans 1, Paul says, we, we exchanged the intimacy with God's glory, the intimacy with who God is that we could have had to thrive in the light of who God is the opportunity to be with this God as our dearest friend and our greatest treasure, to really see him in his good heart, we traded that in for idols of self and sin. And yet it is these very same people who traded God's glory for idols, who rejected him. These are the ones who he justifies as a gift by his grace. All who fall short of the glory of God are the same ones who are justified as a gift by his grace. They have and do fall short and he justifies them. He gives them a righteous verdict in his courtroom anyway. Now in verse 24, Paul, instead of saying he gives them a righteousness, he uses this phrase, being justified. Righteous, instead of saying you get a righteousness God from God, he says you get justified. If you guys could see the Greek, probably a lot of you guys know this, it's really all the same root words here. The word justified is the verb that goes with the adjective righteous or the noun righteousness. To justify someone is a verb and it's basically to declare them righteous it's an adjective or to grant them a righteousness. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that when Paul says the sinner, the, the, the sinner is justified, he's also saying they have received a righteousness from God. Do you guys follow me? This is the doctrine of justification, this famous doctrine that Martin Luther ch changes complete life from a complete obsessive, depressed, hopeless, religious moralist who hated God and hated himself and hated his life to a man who was set on fire by this freedom from all the pressure to prove himself in the first 10 seconds of the race and, and began to love God so much that he was willing to spend the rest of his life getting chased around by the popes <laughs> to stand for this doctrine that we're justified by grace through faith as a gift it's, to some degree, what God did for Martin Luther is why we're a church. Because he was a very imperfect man, but he, God used him to start a fire that's still blazing. Justification 
Luther said, is the arch doctrine of the church upon which every other doctrine stands or falls. It's like the, the foundation stones. It's the first layer of the house of cards. You've got to keep that one strong and the other cards can be built on it. You, you mess with that one, everything starts to fall down. This is the doctrine of justification. God declares us righteous in his sight because of Jesus. God puts on his judge's robe. He picks up his holy gavel. He looks at us in the reality of our sins and failures and selfishness. And he hammers out of that gavel and says, clean forever. Justified. You might remember the colloquial little idea. Justified just as if I'd never sinned. It's pretty good. Justified just as if I'd never sinned. Not just the sins, not, not just forgiven of the sins that you do, but forgiven of the sins of the things that you don't do that you should have. The ways you've ignored, the ways that we do ignore and turn away from and withdraw from love. Not just the ways that we proactively hurt. Not just our hatred, but also our indifference it's forgiven. And that means that it's as if we had done all the right things that we should have done. Not just that we haven't done the wrong things. It's as if we'd actually done all the right things. Because we're forgiven of all of it. We have a, a clean record. We have a righteousness in front of God. It's not just being forgiven and walking around. I got forgiven. I'm such a jerk. But I'm glad I got forgiven. At least I'm not going to go to hell. No, it's it's righteousness. I'm, I'm, I'm received. I'm welcomed in. I'm qualified to get all of God's rich grace and mercy. I wrote a formal sentence of justification. Just in case this helps, let me read it to you. And if it doesn't help, go back to just as if I'd never sinned because that's pretty good too. But here's my more flowery, formed out um, idea. Justification is the judicial act of God, remember that's legal language, in which he declares the sinner to have a righteous standing before him in spite of the sinful condition of his nature or her nature. This justification is a free gift of God by his grace received by the sinner through faith in Jesus Christ. If you like that and you want to lean on it, you can tell me and I'll send it to you in a text. But it could be too cumbersome and that's okay as long as you, you get the basic idea. Listen, it's so important to stress that this all comes freely to us as sinners. We're going to talk more, a lot more about this, this, the way it comes but I just want to say here that it's important to recognize it is not because we are righteous in ourselves. Justification is an act of God that is not dependent on your character. It can't be. That's the whole point. It's an instantaneous declaration without dependence to your actual moral status at all. Alistair McGrath, a theologian, says, there is no righteousness within the man or woman which can be considered to be the basis of the divine verdict of justification. 
the righteousness upon which such a judgment is necessarily based is external. It's external. I used to hear this phrase that from God we receive an alien righteousness or a foreign righteousness. And that's not designed to make you feel like it's not yours. It's designed to make it feel like it is yours, but it doesn't depend on your performance day after day after day after day. Because mankind does not deserve it, but also mankind cannot earn it. This gift of justification must be all of God. But it begs the question here, if there's nothing inherent in us to receive this declaration, upon what grounds can you be declared righteous before God? Isn't God's righteous character spoiled when he justifies guilty people? Isn't he corrupting himself by sweeping under the rug their selfishness? No, this is not the case because as we see in the following verses, this righteousness is bought with a price. It's a paid for righteousness. We move to the next point. Verse 24b, this righteousness comes through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. These are heavy words. Please try to stay with me. Propitiation is a word that like, like what? Just Please try to track here. Don't give up. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he had passed over the sins previously committed. <laughs> For the demonstration, I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. No wonder like 70 books are written about like three verses <laughs> you know, when Paul writes this stuff. Like who can just get through this stuff? Like Mike, how are you doing back there? It's just like, Phrase after phrase after phrase. Paul sounds like he's in an English parliament, you know, like a really serious one, not the one where they're all like, ah, <laughs> but the, the old movie ones, you know, for the demonstration I say. It's, like, it's hard to track with this, but it's really, really great stuff and it is worth writing 70 books about. The apostle now explains how God can justify us and give us a righteous verdict in his court and not corrupt himself and not lie about you and me. Sinners are given a free gift through the redemption of Christ Jesus. Redemption, this is a, an idea that conveys one who has gained freedom after a payment of a price. You redeem something by buying it back. A cost is incurred to get the freedom. It had to do, in some cases, with buying back your freedom as a slave or your slavery being bought back by someone else. Your freedom being bought back by someone else after you've been a, a slave. So the point is, though, redemption brings in the idea of cost. Justification is free for you and for me. It is not free for God. It's free for me and you. It is not free at all for God. It costs him a lot. You get it free. He doesn't 
get to do it for free. Believers have been freed from condemnation at the high price of the offering of the death of Jesus Christ. He was, Paul says, a propitiation for their sins. This is another difficult word. It, it, it has to do with the Old Testament system of sacrifices. You put the blood of the lamb on top of the Ark of the Covenant and it appeased God's justice against the sin of people. It exhausted his wrath. It turned it aside. So this word propitiation, it calls to mind a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that receives and exhausts, gets rid of God's wrath for sin. Do you get that? Does that make sense? The point is, God didn't corrupt himself when he declares you righteous in his sight. A great price was paid by him and to him for our justification. Listen to this. I love this. The paying of the price and the receiving of the price happened completely outside of you. No one was paid this redemption price but God the Father. And no one paid it but God the Son. It was an agreement completely between those two for you. Started and finished outside of you, successfully, I might add. They worked out a deal. It's putting it in really, really crude terms. But they made a covenant for you that you didn't start, you didn't contribute to, and by God's grace, you don't have to. That's the good news. Jesus paid the price to his father for you. The father received it on your behalf from Jesus. He ex Jesus exhausted the wrath of God when he hung on the cross, receiving God's judgment for our sins. One writer put it really beautifully. Justification comes only through condemnation. Life only through death. But it's not your condemnation. It's not your death. But it is your justification. It is your righteousness. It is paid for. It is bought. It is an incorruptible justification and righteousness. It's unimpeachable. Your sin and Satan cannot look at you today and say, ah, they don't deserve that. That righteousness won't hold up in the court of law. Oh, yes, it will. It's bought with the blood of the Son of God. You have a perfect record in God's courtroom. The final day of judgment that Paul spent so much of the last two chapters alluding to, this day of wrath, the day of justice. Wrath sounds somehow unjust. No, it's God's just wrath. This day of justice, when everyone will be repaid for what they have done, it has already happened for the believer. It happened for them on Calvary. The day of judgment has come for the believer and it has gone. Christ is the receiver of the condemnation that they would receive on the last day and he is the reason 
that God can remain just as he declares them righteous in his sight. In the public display of the cross of Christ, God demonstrates to the world, Paul says in these last verses, that he does not let sin go unpunished, but true to his righteousness, he receives the punishment in himself and true to his saving heart and his great love, he declares you righteous in Christ. Sins are paid for, not swept under the rug, but sinners are acquitted, declared innocent, blameless, clean, righteous in his sight, perfect. Hebrews uses the word perfect. Perfect before him. In this way, God is able to, Paul says, be just. And also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you get that? He can stay just because he paid for it. And he can justify you because your justification is paid for. This is it. I just pray that we, I, you can rest in the righteousness that God bestows upon us. We are not righteous in ourselves, but we are absolutely righteous in Christ. In fact, if you keep saying we're not righteous in ourselves and keep hammering that, you probably won't really be able to rest in the truth that we are truly righteous in Christ. So it's, it's enough to say we are truly righteous in Christ. May God help us not to rest in our moral performance. May God help us not to despair of our failures. May God help us not to put our justification for our existence in empty things like our earning or our parenting or our looks or our lack of looks. I need God to help me say to my heart, Lord, you have justified me. I have a righteousness before you that won't go away on my bad days, on my good days. It's greater than my efforts. It's greater than my failures. I'm righteous in Christ, and that's enough. Tim Keller, I love what he says about this. He says, yes, he says, repent of your sins. Say, those sins are bad. I shouldn't have done those things. God, forgive me. Thank you that you do forgive me. Acknowledge and affirm. But he also says, also, repent of your justification. (laughs) Repent of the things outside of Christ that you lean on to find hope and peace. Sidney Pollack was a great director. He did a few movies that I don't know how many of you guys would even know because you're younger, most of you. But but he... um, Mike's not, but so maybe you'd know some. Mike, we can talk later about Sidney Pollock movies. I mean, you may know some ones I never even heard of because of how old you are, but um, <laughs> I'm just teasing you. <laughs> uh, that's right. But I have a righteousness. So, so he's a great director. I love a lot of his movies. Um, he did, one of his last movies was Michael Clayton. Be careful with the language, but it's brilliant, brilliant movie. A lot of, anyway, my point is, my point is, his family, he was dying and he wouldn't stop making movies. And his family was mad at him. They're like, you gotta stop, we need you. 
And he just said, I can't stop. When I make movies, I feel like I deserve to be around. It justifies me in a sense. It gives me justification for being around here. Keller talks about an article by a writer who, who really struggled with his writing. He wanted to be a great writer. He wanted to be famous and be really successful. And, but he just wasn't that, there yet. But you know what gave him satisfaction? He looked at his two kids and he said, they're all the justification I need, my two kids. Keller says he's going to destroy those kids. He's going to put so much pressure on them and on himself for their success. It won't work. I think that's pretty shrewd and on track as I look at how good, it, how good I do at parenting when I, yeah, find my hope in my kids' condition. It's really hard to love people when you're seeking your justification from them. People-pleasing is a big thing for us. It's a big thing for me. One of my big problems as a pastor is not finding my identity in ministry, not finding my identity in the success of my church. When this room is fuller, my heart feels lighter. I have more hope. When the room is smaller, my heart starts to feel accused and condemned. Or I, I can lash out in conversations with people that aren't here and why aren't you, you know? And you know what? I think almost none of that has anything to do with love. And that's why, to be honest, sometimes I just don't say those things to people or ask them about certain things because I just, I wanna love. It's hard to love people when you're basing your success or failure on how they respond to you. Because now you need them. And now they have control over you. Now what they do to you or not is suddenly a, a threat. But if your justification in God's courtroom is perfect and righteous, it makes more and more room to love them. To let them be where they're going to be, yes, warn, correct, encourage, exhort, but doing it out of a place that's it's about them and their good fortune and their prosperity in Christ as opposed to what you need to have from them. Because you don't need to have anything from them because you're righteous before God. He loves you. He's approved you. He's going to stay with you. So it, it doesn't matter so much as what people think of you. Now, now, there's tension here. God didn't give us marriage to not care about how we're loved or not. God didn't give us jobs to not care about whether our work is, is fruitful or not. Those are good desires to have, to want those things. But don't we so quickly make them the center and the core as opposed to the, the things that surround the relationship we have with the Lord? Now, they become the center I've got to have this successful career. I've got to have the church look this way. I've got to have my spouse understand me. I need that approval. I need that, what I deserve from them, to feel safe. It's very hard to love people in those kinds of situations. 
And so what ends up happening with the doctrine of justification when you realize that God has approved you. He declares you righteous. And you can fail. You can make mistakes and your life isn't shattered. People can disappoint you and it can be really hard and painful. But it doesn't destroy you. And because you know he's there and he's approved you, you you can fear them less and need them less and love them more and care for them more from a genuine heart. Does that make sense? I need it a lot. So I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not free from this great need. I have such a great need for it. Myself. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll sing a little song and move to potluck. Lord, may we not only in our hearts renounce our sins, but may we, Lord, have grace to see and renounce our justification outside of you, our, the ways that we get imprisoned by the shotgun at the start of the race, and our hearts begin to say, we have 10 seconds to justify our existence here. May you give us power to exalt in this pronouncement that you've declared over us, righteous in Christ. Lord, we believe Peter was right when he said Paul writes things that are hard to understand. So we need your Holy Spirit to help us see this, to help us embrace it. Lord, it's hard to believe sometimes how safe we are with you because of Christ. The severity of your judgment is very severe to us. As Moses said in Psalm 90, he said about you, who can understand the power of your anger? But Lord, as severe as your holiness is, your love is incredibly lavish and infinitely compassionate. And in Jesus... Your love and your holiness come together and your judgment is overcome by your love through judgment on your son. You're a beautiful God. You overcame our judgment by, by judging yourself for us. That is beautiful. Your heart is beautiful. You didn't want us to perish, so you took our perishing on yourself. Thank you. Would you help us to get this?
that we're righteous in Christ. Would you help us to be freed by it more and more? Would you help me? I need it so much, God. I need it to be a better pastor, a better husband, a better father. I stink so often at these things. And I, I'm sure I'm not alone. And so I pray for all my brothers and sisters and anyone who doesn't know you in this room. May the freedom of being able to say, I'm righteous in Christ. I don't have to earn it. I can't earn it, but I don't have to. May that free us up to joy and to love and to rest. Oh God, please. We pray this for your glory. We'd see how great you are and for our good that we'd get healthier spiritually by it. Thank you for Jesus. We love you and we thank you for him. In his name we pray, amen. Listen, I don't know right now if this made much sense to you, but it's really, really, um, it's, I can tell you this, whether or not this made sense to you, it is really crucial you get this stuff. So if it didn't, please come and tell me, talk to me. I got better writers and better preachers I can direct you to and lots of books. And we're gonna stay on this for, for a while because we're, we're done with judgment full stop. We're, we're into grace upon grace upon grace for the rest of this book, really. So, yay.